we're back to this celebrity worship. But so-and-so, I hear this all the time, so-and-so, he's a great man of God. And then I say, well, how do you know he's a great man of God? Well, because he wrote this great article, okay? You know, I can point to any, I can point to any number of big men of God who wrote good articles who ended up being either frauds or charlatans or sexual, you know, deviants. I mean, I, that doesn't prove anything. You have to look and examine the fruit and not just look at the doctrinal statement. So that's kind of a long way of saying it's not enough to assume a guy is a man of God because that's what he is purporting himself to be. You have to check the fruit and you have to check the doctrine and both of those together. Uh, so our, our guest this week on Conversations with Jeff is a nationally syndicated radio show host. You can hear her on more than 400 radio show stations across the country. Her guests are typically the who's who within Christianity and conservative politics, whether it's James White, Greg Laurie, Steve Camp, Dinesh D'Souza. Um, welcome, Janet Mefford, to the show, and we're so glad that we could have you. Well, I'm so glad to be with you, Jeff. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. And so, you know, one of the things that I typically like to do with everybody, you know, the first time that I have them on is I just love for you to share your testimony, how you became a Christian and kind of what led up to that. Oh, uh, well, I am one of those Christians with such a boring testimony. This way, this may put you to sleep. I hope it doesn't put you to sleep. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yes, I, um, well, I am one of those Christians who grew up in a Christian home, and so I was in church all of my life. I came to know the Lord when I was, I think I was about six. And then, of course, when I reflect back on being even younger than six, I always wonder, hey, I wonder how long I really was a believer, because... I always loved Jesus, and I was always excited about the Bible, but I um, did come to know the Lord when I was six, for sure. That mm -hmm. was when I prayed to ask the Lord into my heart, and so it was, like I said, it's very boring. There's <laughs> <laughs> no kind of interesting twist to the story whatsoever, but the older I get, the more grateful I am that I have a boring testimony, because I can just look back at the Lord's involvement in my life is just a testimony to His faithfulness, and I'm very, very grateful. Of course, totally. And I, and I feel like a lot of times everybody always wants, you know, it's they, they always feel bad because they don't have this crazy story or God doing this crazy thing in their life. But at the same time, too, a lot of us can kind of be thankful that, you know, God saved us from a very young age. Um, so that's always, oh, yes, that's always absolutely. a blessing. Absolutely. For sure. Now, now, so basically, we go, going from the age of six to now, you are, you know, have your own radio show, and I know you've done reporting in the past and that sort of thing. So what led up and what transpired in your life that led up to you now having a radio show on hundreds of radio shows across the, across the country? Well, I would say a very short way of explaining that is I got into radio initially when I was a freshman in college. I went to Baylor University and took my first radio elective, and that sparked an interest in radio. I had DJ uh, shift there at the college radio station. I was doing news, and then I sort of left it aside, and my pastor had suggested that I use my interest in radio to work at a Christian radio station that my church ran up in Alaska, and I ended up doing that two different times a couple of years later, and then took another side radio job while I was reporting. I was in journalism and reporting at the newspaper in uh, suburban Chicago where I lived, and I took a side job at a Christian radio station, and so all along I was in Christian radio peripherally. Mm -hmm. I always loved it, and I always enjoyed it, but it was never my full-time gig, and after I got married, I was doing freelance writing, and I was trying to raise all my babies, and I ended up doing an anchoring, a part-time anchoring job for a news network out of Washington, and that led to an invitation to become an afternoon drive host in Dallas at a Christian radio station here in Dallas where I am. And then six months after that, the network wanted to syndicate me. So I ended up doing that show for about six years. I was doing three hours a day of daily radio, um, three hours of live radio, I should say, every day. Mm -hmm. And I was just exhausted. <laughs> so, yeah, I could imagine. Um, yeah, through a series, even six years of that was more than enough. It was just a lot and trying to keep my family and, um, you know, in good meals at, at dinner time and all the other things that are necessary to run a household. So um, I ended up... Uh, asking to get out of that contract, and I thought that would be the end of everything. And mm -hmm. then we ended up launching another show called Janet Meffer Today. That was about three years ago, three and a half years ago. 
And then uh, American Family Radio came to me and asked if I would do a show for them as well. So now I'm hosting Janet Mefford today, and I'm also hosting Janet Mefford Live for American Family Radio. So that's the really abridged Reader's Digest version of my yeah. career. <laughs> yeah, for sure, totally. And then, so when you, when you're describing your show, because I feel like there's a, there's a lot of different kinds of either sh- radio shows or podcasts or that sort of thing, and everybody kind of has their main. Uh, focus or whatever it is. What's kind of been your focus? Because I know there's some shows where it's you know it's all reformed theology. There's some there's some shows that are eschatology. What would you say is kind of what describes you and your show? Well, it, it, I would differentiate really between the two shows because Janet Mefford today, I do longer interviews typically, so I get into more biblical topics, cultural topics. Sometimes I'll do an hour long interview, and. I will touch on politics. I'll touch on what's, whatever is going on in the culture at the time. So, but that's m- more of a biblically focused show. Uh, Janet Mefford Life is also all biblically focused, but I tend to do a little bit more of the political uh, news of the day. I do a little bit more of that on that show. But generally speaking, I'm the same person on each show. So um, it's just a matter of the fact that Janet Mefford Live is a live show where I'm taking calls. So part right. of that show every day is devoted to taking calls, and so it's more driven by what's in the news, probably, than Janet Mefford today. Right, for sure. And so, so then kind of tying that into some of the things that you see in the news and that sort of thing, I know that we've both kind of seen a lot of compromise happening within the church, within politics, within whatever it is. What do you think right now is one of the biggest struggles that the church is having in the sense of holding true to God's Word? Well, I would say that the biggest struggle we're having is that we're, we're really veering away from God's Word. That's been my observation. I think for a lot of years we have seen the trends in evangelical churches veering toward what works and the pragmatic approach to ministry and to ecclesiology rather than what the Bible tells us we ought to be doing. That's been really a problem my entire life and predates my life, definitely, when you look back at the history of some denominations. But I think that's manifesting itself in a whole lot of ways. Clearly, the revoice controversy has been a very big demonstration of the downgrade that we're seeing in our own day, and the social justice nonsense that has reared its ugly head again in our generation. It was the social gospel back in the day. My parents grew up in the main line, and I experienced some of that growing up myself. It's garbage. It goes nowhere. It destroys churches, but a new generation doesn't know that, so they're embracing it. And this is very concerning. I I would say probably the gay Christianity push is my biggest concern right now, because that's the one that's really been stealth. That's the one that they've really been trying to keep under the radar and Mm -hmm. incrementally roll out. And I think that's even a a graver danger to the church than the social justice push, because at least with the social justice push, horrible though it is and unbiblical though it is, they're fairly, you know, obvious about it, and they talk about it, and they push it, and they're very, you know, above board in in stating what they want to do and what they think we ought to do and what we ought to think, not so much with the gay Christianity. And so that's really where my focus has been. But Broadly speaking, I think the biggest thing that ails the church is the lack of mastery that a lot of evangelicals have of their Bibles to be able to be discerning about these different trends that are popping up during our own, you know, during this time period. And they're very, very concerning. I know they are to you, too. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I know that it wasn't that long ago that I feel like everybody within conservative Christianity was really critiquing things like the emergent church and that kind of thing. And that's kind of gone by the wayside, but I feel like there's still this residual bad theology and bad understanding of what God's word is that's kind of come out of that. Now that's even coming into the conservative church, and I'm guessing that that's probably what's leading up to things like Revoice and gay Christianity and uh, the social gospel, social justice, all that kind of stuff. Right, and I think that part of the problem that we have in the Internet age is we are seeing elites if you want to call them that, within evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. linking arms with one another and becoming almost what you would laughingly or maybe facetiously term the Borg, (laughs) to which we almost assimilate. And that, I think, is extremely dangerous, even if you have a group like the Gospel Coalition, which which is completely biblical, if it were completely biblical, which I don't believe it is. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that they have such power and such reach and encompass so many people and have so much influence, I think is very dangerous, even if there were nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. But that's, 
I think, a problem in the Internet age that you can have parachurch organizations or arms of denominations like the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission or the Southern Baptist Convention having inordinate outsized influence on people who otherwise might not have any interaction with the people in those organizations. It's, that's, that is very troubling to me because people want to be with the latest and the greatest and the trendy. And, Jeff, I've lived long enough to see the latest and the greatest and the trendy fall again and again and again and again. Everything that was trendy, it ends, seems to end up in a train wreck. And mm-hmm. we never really seem to learn our lesson. Willow Creek is a perfect example of that. It was the bee's knees in the 80s, and look how it is ending. It's with in disgrace and humiliation and lying and sexual impropriety. So For sure. uh, people need to have better discernment. And I, it just it seems like we're trying to reinvent the wheel, and it's never actually round. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I and I know that you know you had mentioned that a lot of the pastors are linking arms; they're working with each other. And I know that I feel like a lot of times there is this excuse of, oh, it's just uh, these different degrees of separation, or you know, it's you're overlooking, you know, speaking at conferences with each other, you know, whatever that is. What do you think the solution is to those who want to hold faithfully to Scripture? Um, but then let's say they're getting invited to go speak at some of these conferences or to even go to the, some, some of these conferences where the, that's, that are put on by guys like the Gospel Coalition or whoever it is. What's, what's kind of the solution there? Well, I think obviously you have to be very discerning about who you are appearing at a conference with. I know it is the case that sometimes you're invited to speak at a conference and you, di- you didn't know who else was going to be there. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you know full well who will be appearing on the dais with you, and you do have to be discerning about that sort of stuff. I mean, we don't want to be overly condemnatory that, you you know, that guy sitting next to you on the dais, you subscribe to everything this guy says and does. Clearly that's not the case. But I think in the case of the Gospel Coalition, I just don't know how biblically faithful pastors can have anything to do with that group. It's clearly a progressive, politically-minded organization with far greater ambitions than biblical fidelity. At this point, I don't think there's any denying that this is the case with this group. And I think when it comes to conferences, get off the stage. Maybe it's just time to get off the stage for a while to stay within your own church, preach the gospel, faithfully exposit the text, disciple the flock that is your charge that God gave to you, and just keep your ministry within the confines of your church. I don't know why we can't do that more. Why does everybody need to have a stage? Why does everybody need to go on the conference circuit? I love conferences. I'm not trying to be critical of conferences in general. But as we know, the conferencing, I think, has gotten a little out of control in some regards, and maybe for pastors who are on the conference circuit a lot, it might be worthwhile to take a little breather and regroup and then decide which sorts of conferences would be most beneficial for the body of Christ and perhaps give it a little bit more prayer and a little bit more consideration. Like I said, I'm not against conferences. I think there's a need for them at times, but you, you do have to, I just think, have to be honest. I think people need to be more honest. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there is a a tendency for people to want to defend themselves. We're all like that. But at certain times when you are aligning yourself or appearing at a conference or several conferences with the same problematic guy, you know, just be honest and say, well, I didn't think he was that bad, but I'll be careful in the future, that kind of thing. Whether or not that happens, I'm not really sure. So when we're dealing with organizations like the Gospel Coalition, um, what a lot of people do is they point to the leaders of the Gospel Coalition, whether it's Al Mohler or Matt Chandler or some of these guys, and they point to them and they're saying that, well, they're faithful to God's word, they preach the gospel, maybe they're off a little bit on the social justice stuff and that sort of thing. Um, What's the response to that? Because I feel like those names give the Gospel Coalition credibility but at the same time, clearly the Gospel Coalition is way off on a lot of major issues. Yes, well, I think, <laughs> I'll give you an example of this. I had a little conversation on Twitter with Sam Alberry. He's a, an editor at the Gospel Coalition, and he runs a ministry in the U.K. called Living Out, and it's all about I'm same-sex attracted, but I'm a Christian, and it, it's this soft version of gay Christianity. And Sam Alberry promoted Revoice, 
Tim Keller spoke at his conference in June. Sam Albury is the guy pushing the biblically inclusive church audit on evangelical churches, which basically assesses churches as to how pro-gay they are, acceptably pro-gay they are, which is horrifying, absolutely horrifying. When I got into it with Sam Albury, he was asking me some questions and jumping in because I was being critical of him. All of a sudden, he said, well, you need to go to our website and look at our doctrinal statement because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, for a lot of people, that would stop you in your tracks and you'd say, oh, well, I mean, that's biblical. That's good. But the problem for Sam Albury is I was aware of a whole lot more than that. So what I said to him was, and I was trying to be very pointed on purpose, and I said, do you think that we're all idiots? You promoted Revoice with its promotion of sexual minorities and sexual orientation and mixed orientation marriage and all of this stuff that is nowhere in Scripture. You don't get to dodge where you are being unbiblical by trying to do a throwaway squirrel and say, I believe in marriage between one man and one woman. And I think the same principle applies to anybody at the Gospel Coalition. Just because a man is sound here doesn't mean that he's sound everywhere. And it is imperative that we make an assessment of these men based on the whole picture and that you are willing to look at the problematic areas of their life and character and their doctrine, as well as the stuff that is good. I mean, this is such a basic principle of discernment. The idea that, I believe it was Spurgeon who said, discernment is not the ability to tell right from wrong. It's the ability to tell almost right from right. And that's, that's the key. And I think for a lot of people, again, we're back to the problem, Jeff, of people not knowing their Bibles and not applying Scripture in every instance, and especially to those who we respect as great men of God. I think sometimes that's an assumption that those men don't deserve. I'm not talking about any, any specific person, but no, we're back to this celebrity worship. But so-and-so, I hear this all the time, so-and-so, he's a great man of God. And then I say, well, how do you know he's a great man of God? Well, because he wrote this great article. Okay, you know I can point to any I can point to any number of big men of God who wrote good articles who ended up being either frauds or charlatans or sexual you know deviants. I mean I, that doesn't prove anything. You have to look and examine the fruit and not just look at the doctrinal statement. So that's kind of a long way of saying it's not enough to assume a guy is a man of God because that's what he is purporting himself to be. You have to check the fruit and you have to check the doctrine and both of those together. So one of the responses that I think we've both kind of gotten, I think, when it comes to responses to uh, critiques of a lot of these guys is that they're spot on when it comes to the gospel and they, um, they are expounding on the word of God, that sort of thing. And these are the things like revoice and the social justice. These are just secondary issues that we can just disagree on as long as we agree on the gospel. So why are these what they would call these secondary issues so important for the church to get right? And it's not just the gospel and only, and only the gospel that we have to get right. We can just kind of debate the other issues. Well, because the gospel is the good news by which we are saved but there's a whole lot more that we need to worry about in terms of orthodoxy that also matter to the church. And a lot of things that people will label as secondary issues really are not secondary issues. They're inextricably linked to the gospel and the faithfulness to the gospel. For example, going back to the homosexuality issue, can you really tell me that you believe the gospel if you have a conference and you refuse to allow any Christian who's been set free from homosexuality is now married to somebody of the opposite sex and has a family and has been walking with Christ faithfully for the last 30 years? Can you really tell me you believe in the transforming power of the gospel if you omit those people and you denigrate those people, or in the case of Revoice, you don't even allow them to attend as mm -hmm. participants, like sitting in the pews? So th this is the thing. You've got to look at the whole picture. The other side of that equation is it is very easy, Jeff, as you know, for anybody to adopt a sound doctrinal statement. It's like the liberals with the Constitution. Oh, yeah, we believe the Constitution. Yeah, totally. But then when you look at what they're doing, their behavior is denying what they proclaim to hold to. Mm -hmm. It's the same way with Orthodox theology or the Gospel itself. It's what you need to be saved. 
but anybody that look at the seven sons of Sceva, right? You look mm-hmm. in the book of Acts and the seven sons of Sceva, we're looking at what Paul was doing. Oh, this is great. In the name of that Jesus, all these demons are coming out. We want to get in on this. Let's, let's get on this. Okay. Let's, so they go over and they say, in the name of that Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. And what does the demon say? I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> so, <laughs> It, it, it's like I say, there's more to the picture than merely somebody able to to articulate John 3.16. We just can't be that shallow. Right. For sure. Totally. And so with when it comes to revoice specifically, so I know I know and I know you mentioned this, too, is that they they banned certain people from attending. Uh, you know, I know that there was uh, a couple of guys that had come out of the gay lifestyle that are now, you know, straight and they're following after Christ and they're proclaiming the truth and they weren't allowed to come either. Um, is, is that just them trying to silence any opposition and then just try to force their wacky theology into the church? Or is it some other motivation? What's their main motivation for silencing all opposition? No, I think you're exactly right. I think it's they don't want anybody coming along and having a narrative that will disrupt their narrative. What they are about is pushing the narrative of Dr. Mark Yarhouse and those like him, who is a psychologist who came up with this narrative that you can't ever really change your sexual orientation and um, sexual minorities is a term we ought to use. Well, minority was something that the gay activist Harry Hay years ago was pushing this line. This is all old gay activism in new packaging. And -hmm. what they're trying to do is incrementally lure the church into their trap by using guilt trips and saying, don't you love your gay brother, and shouldn't we have compassion and show the love of Jesus? Well, of course, of course we should love people and have compassion. But what happens is when these guys come along and they say, you're telling people that they can't leave homosexuality behind and be transformed by the Holy Spirit and walk in holiness for the rest of their lives and live as straight people the way God designed us to be. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is, they, the, the revoice crowd, is not doing what is biblical. They can't defend it with Bible verses. I have interacted with these guys directly on Twitter. They come to me and they try to get into it with me. And I say, where does the Word of God say anything about sexual minorities? Or I say, where does the Word of God say anything about sexual orientation? Where does it use the term mixed orientation marriage? They have no answer to that. They know mm-hmm. they have no answer. And so when they are put on the spot and asked, where is it written, they come up short. They can't afford to get in front of a biblical Christian who knows the Word of God because they can't defend it biblically. In fact, you can come with all sorts of verses from Scripture that are a direct contradiction of what they're teaching, and they don't want that because that's going to mess things up for them and their progress, quote-unquote. Well, yeah, and I feel feel like to a certain degree, this this is kind of coming back full circle to what we were talking about earlier of— the church, number one, they're, they're not literate when it comes to what Scripture actually says. And I, I really, I hold the pastors accountable for that because a lot of times yeah. it's this just easy sermons, then you don't really get into any theology or understanding the background. It's, you know, personal development, that sort of thing. Um, but, but when it comes to this specifically, it's almost like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about, let's say, mixed marriages or whatever it is. Um, and so it's like, well, that, that's open for interpretation and you can, you can taking that logic, you can really throw in so many different theologies and so many different wacky leftist liberal beliefs into scripture. If you take that logic and there, there's no way that you can interpret scripture using that kind of logic at all. Well, no. And, and there's certain passages that are absolutely irrefutable. You can't, you can't use the dodge of saying, well, those things can be interpreted differently. I mean, for example, if you go to 1 Corinthians 6 and you read about uh, you were you know, homosexuals, you were thieves, you were adulterers, you were this, you were this, all the list of sins, and then it says, such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been uh, sanctified in Christ Jesus. How do you interpret it any other way than to look at the sins that were listed and to conclude by coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being washed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and transformed and given a new nature in Christ, you have left those sins behind. You can't Mm -hmm. interpret it any other way. If you are interpreting it any other way, you're doing violence to Scripture. 
And we know that Scripture interprets Scripture, and there are so many passages that will cross-interpret one another that make God's view of homosexuality and sexual sin absolutely plain. It's not nebulous, Jeff. You know this. When you look at the text of Scripture, it's not uh, veiled behind some thick fog, and maybe possibly we could conclude through, you know, the transitive property that maybe God doesn't like sex between two people of the same sex. It's not, there's no room in between. There's no air in between truth and what is obviously truth when we read the Word of God. It's all right there, but they don't want to read those passages. And most of all, they don't want to believe and obey those passages. Uh, There's not really a spirit of repentance about these people. There's a spirit of, I'm a victim, you need to accept me. Now, if I, how is that the spirit of Christ? We all know that's not the spirit of Christ. Did Jesus come to the disciples and say, I'm the Messiah and you need to accept me? No, right. <laughs> not at all. That's not how Christians operate, and that's not how Christ operates. Right. Well, you know, and I, and I feel like one of the responses that comes out of the whole revoice camp to a certain degree is, well, we are repenting because we're not acting out that lifestyle. It's just who we are on the inside, I guess we could say. So what's what's the biblical response to them saying, well, the, the sin issue is the fact that I'm no longer performing that sin, um, but I just can't change my thoughts and I can't change, you know, who I am, basically, I think is the response. Well, I think the premise is wrong. First of all, there's nothing in the Bible. We have to examine ourselves according to Scripture, not according to our feelings. It is not the case that with other sins people are saying, I'm basically an adulterer, but I'm just not engaging in it. Or I'm basically a pedophile, I'm just not engaging in it. I mean, if you substitute in any other sexual sin, it would never fly. But we've Mm -hmm. been so inundated with gay terminology and gay propaganda over the last 10 years that people are just conditioned to accept the premise. I don't accept the premise. When they say, well, this is my orientation, I can't change... I'd say, why is this the one sin that God can't change? Because they would accept that any other sin, the Lord can forgive you and cleanse you, and you can walk in obedience to him. Now, the problem with saying, I have this orientation, none of us can help our temptations. But this gets into the area of, you know, people will try to equate, well, Jesus talked even about adultery, that you're guilty of adultery, even if you lust after a woman in your heart. That's adultery. Mm -hmm. So the Lord is pointing to what goes on in the heart is the sin, and then it manifests itself with action. But the sin Mm -hmm. starts in the heart. That's the part that when you talk about the issue of repentance and so-called sexual orientation, that's what they don't want to grapple with, that the desire itself is sin, and it's also a different determination with sin on, on, well, let me say it this way. When you have a man who's attracted to a woman or a woman who's attracted to a man, that's a natural attraction. This is not a Mm. natural attraction. It is not natural to be sexually attracted to somebody of the same sex. This is what Romans 1 refers to as unnatural lusts. So that's really what, what it comes down to, is this crowd is not about saying the attraction itself is sin, and I didn't ask for it, but it's sin. Um, all of us, I think, could point to things in our lives that we have a temptation toward a particular sin, and we don't want it, but it, we still have it, but we fight it. That's what the Christian does. Right. It's not that we are perfect and completely sinless. Obviously, we wouldn't need Christ if we were already there. But the, the natural state of the Christian, now that he's been born again by the Spirit of God, is to fight sin. When you're not fighting sin, but you're justifying sin, that's a red flag. Right, for sure. And, you know, and I think, too, within that, there becomes this warped understanding of sanctification where Christ is continually making you more Christ-like throughout your entire life. And this idea that that you can still be this old, your old self, pre-Christ, sin nature, that sort of thing, and that, well, I don't have to change that. I don't right. have to repent that because that's the way I was born. It's like, well... We were, we were all born with that sin nature. That doesn't mean that we can't change or shouldn't change or anything along those lines. Right. Um, and, and I think that the, the, other, the other side of this, too, is I feel like this with both the social justice, when it comes to a lot of the issues that the church is facing, including the whole homosexuality within the church, 
is, do you think that the church is paying attention too much to what the world is saying and the world is teaching as opposed to what Scripture is saying? Is that is this really like a symptom of that problem? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> yes. 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 Yes, absolutely. It, it, absolutely. It goes back to Bible-free Christianity. They're mm-hmm. getting their ideas and they're getting their premises and they're getting their assumptions from the world. They're not getting it from the Bible. How often, Jeff, when you look at the social media accounts, for example, of the, this woke crowd or the pro-gay Christianity crowd, how much are they really delving into the text of the Bible? Yeah. They're Rare, not. Rarely, if, rarely they're not. if ever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're not quoting scripture. They'll they'll go to a couple go-to verses when they're questioned on the social justice stuff and usually rip it out of context and then they can mm-hmm. be corrected and then they uh they go on to something else. But the the gay Christianity there is no verse. It's it's feelings and it's victimology and it's psychology. These are the things and of course that's all worldly. It's not coming mm-hmm. from God's word at all because God's word convicts us. And when you want to hold on to your sin, the last thing you want is for, for the Spirit of God to convict you. Yes. Now, why, why do you think, because I, I know that there's been like a small minority of people that have been really confronting the whole revoice issue and homosexuality within the church and that sort of thing. Why do you think that there's been so much silence from a lot of the guys that we would, a lot of the pastors specifically, that we would have thought that would have taken a stand or at least voiced their, their position on this issue? Why do you think there's been so much silence around this? I think for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons I believe is because this issue in general terrifies people, terrifies them. Mm-hmm. We see what big gay, as I like to call them, has done to Jack Phillips. We've seen what they've done to Kim Davis. We've seen what they've done to Baron L. Stutzman and Aaron and Melissa Klein and the Benham brothers and on and on and on. These people are totalitarians. They're bullies. And they will go after Christians and destroy their livelihoods. Uh, take their stuff, uh, drag them through court, humiliate them, call them, you know, they endure all sorts of death threats and harassment. And I think a lot of people see that and say, I I don't want that to happen to me. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. It's none of my business. But it's a lack of courage. It's a lack of moral courage and a lack of moral outrage. So that's part of the problem. Another problem, I think, is you have pastors who don't want to address it because they're always worried about the um, family problem. In other words, well, if I say too much, there's a woman in our, our congregation who has a gay son. What, what they don't recognize is that that's all the more reason for you to address it biblically, because there are people who are confused as to how to respond. And I'm telling you, if we don't get good guidance from the Bible via pastors in the pulpit who believe in it, we're going to get guidance from the Human Rights Campaign and from right. Revoice and from all these gay so-called ministries that are popping up. Is that a good alternative? No. Now, the other side of the coin on this, when you ask me, why do you think they're silent? Again, we're back to the Borg. I think there are a lot of people who think the world of the Gospel Coalition and some of these elites, and at least those who are maybe in the second or third tier of ministry who might have something of a presence publicly, they don't want to run afoul of the spirit of the day, which is TGC is trying to be nuanced. I think that's part of it. It depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about the faithful local pastor who might just be a little nervous... Uh, that's a different scenario than the guy who might have something of a profile but doesn't want to run, run afoul of the cool kids. That's just mm-hmm. my opinion. That's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, in all reality, that, that makes perfect sense because I, I think that, you know, when we, look at, when we look at church history, the church has always gone through persecution. They've always gone through attacks for taking stands, whether it's just simply for the gospel or whether it's for taking a stand on a moral issue or that sort of thing. But it seems like right now more than any time that I've seen in recent history, there's been such a lack of the visible church and the visible church leaders actually taking a stand. And so that, I mean, in all reality, that kind of, that kind of makes sense. And I think too, to a certain degree, I feel like more and more pastors and more and more people, even within the church are having friends or family members or whoever it is that are coming out as gay or homosexual, homosexual or whatever it is. And so now there's that personal connection where it's like, well, I, I either don't want to offend them or I don't want to tell them that they're wrong or I don't want to tell them that they're in sin. And so it's just easier just to kind of let it slide on right by, I think. Right. Um, so um, now kind of going over a little bit into the social justice stuff, I know that, that, again, that's another issue where 
where a lot of the pastors that are really preaching this, and I feel like this is really getting a stronghold within the church, even amongst the pastors that I never would have thought would have embraced this. Um, what What's their biblical, uh, let's say, their biblical precedence for supporting social justice? Because I feel like, again, a lot of these guys that are in the Gospel Coalition, a lot of these guys that are really pushing this, traditionally they've been very conservative, they've been very biblically minded, but then all of a sudden now they're allowing this kind of liberal ideology to slowly come into the church. What what do you think is leading up to this? Well, I think when you go back and you look at the history, for example, of Tim Keller's own journey, it explains a lot. There are quotes, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but his fascination, for example, and his background with the Frankfurt School mm-hmm. and the, the cultural Marxism that is pervading our society with such uh, I don't know, just such intensity, maybe, is the word I'm looking for. you, you got to go back to the source. There, there are people associated with the Gospel Coalition who we have always regarded to be conservative, but on the social justice, it's, it's not like we don't have precedent on this. It's sort of like talking about socialism in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the Soviet Union. I took Russian all through high school and college, and we went to the Soviet Union when I was in, uh, a teenager um, for my high school trip. And going and seeing communism in action was a completely different experience than studying it in a book. Yes. And when I see a new generation embracing socialism, I go nuts because I'm thinking to myself, not only did I see the effects of communism, talk to the people who lived under communism and heard their horror stories, but read a history book, learn about Pol Pot, learn about Mao Zedong, learn about Lenin and Stalin and all of these dictators throughout history who created so much misery and destroyed so much and murdered so many people. You don't need to know that much to know that it's catastrophic and you should never go in the direction of socialism. So I would hold those guys who are part of the Gospel Coalition who are on board with really kind of this socialistic mindset that Tim Keller himself puts out there as guilty. What, what are you doing partnering with somebody who has that sort of view of the world or that sort of view of economics? He talked in Christianity Today. He did a double interview, I remember, back a few months ago with Michael Gerson, I believe it was. And they were talking about the obligation that we have to the world for benevolence and all this kind of garbage. And it was basically neo-Marxist. Mm-hmm. It just was. So... The same is true with the social gospel movement. Open a book. Do a Google search. (laughs) Look at Walter Rauschenbusch. This stuff has been tried before. Or, if you'd like, go down to your little mainline church that has about two members on the other side of town Mm -hmm. and ask yourself, how did they get here? They got here by denigrating the Word of God as not being inerrant and not being authoritative increasingly, and by when when they created that vacuum, this garbage came in to fill the vacuum, and it destroyed their churches from within. And now you have the point where you even had the United Methodist Church and the PCUSA not too long ago uh, paying money to send women to this reimagining conference where they're talking about worshiping Sophia, for crying out loud. I mean, (laughs) is that where you want to go? Because that's where the social justice movement leads. And I think a lot of this is these guys, you have young guys. Mm-hmm. You have young guys getting on board. They've got all kinds of energy, and they're ready to change the world. And yeah. these guys come in with their worn-out, you know, Jim Wallace garbage. Oh, here we go again. Let's recycle the Jim Wallace, Ron Sider stuff yet that didn't work in the 70s and isn't going to work today, and come up to a new generation and con- convince them, oh, those old, crusty, white men in the religious right, look how evil they are. Don't you want to change the world and make it fair? And they're like, yeah, I'm on board, boss, I'm on board. Well, good luck with that. Because if you don't know the history of the social justice movement, you're not going to know anything about the train wreck that came out of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a part of me that feels sorry for the younger guys who are not clued in to why it's a bad idea to go in this direction, and it's not biblical. And then I get mad at the older guys who know full well that it doesn't work. And for whatever reason, they're going along with this train, and it makes me mad. Uh, Where are the pastors today hollering, thus saith the Lord, from the pulpit? That's what I want to know. Instead, we're getting pastors who are saying, never say the Bible says, never say thus saith the Lord, because you'll alienate people. Right. Well, good good luck with that, too. That's going to end in another train wreck. And it makes me mad, Jeff, because people are going to hell. People 
are going to hell if they do not repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior. And we need a revival, but first we need repentance. We have to get off this train, and we have to return to the Great Commission and to world missions and to put Jesus Christ first, and I just don't see that happening right now, and it really is hard to take. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I know, because I used to be a worship leader in a church, and, you know, this was before I was really paying attention to a lot of this kind of, a lot of this kind of stuff. And, and I remember there was one Sunday, and I was looking out in the congregation, and I realized it's probably been three months since the pastor had ever mentioned the word sin. And I'm like, mm. we, we're dealing with people's eternal souls. We're dealing with, like, this is, this is like literally life and death. It's not just this, oh, let's just try and build a church and have fun and whatever it is. Like, this is like serious. And that's really what kind of changed me around to start thinking, okay, we, we need to actually study a lot of this kind of stuff to know what's truth, what's the gospel, what's going to save and that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. But the, the other thing that I kind of wanted to ask you as well is a lot of times we throw out words like cultural Marxism or the Frankfurt School. And those of us who study it, we get it. We, we know what it is. We understand it. But then a lot of times when I've talked about this on social media, a lot of people have no idea what this is. And they either, try to, they either tune it out thinking it's just kind of conspiracy theory kind of stuff, or it just kind of goes over the head because they have no idea what it is we're talking about. So when we're talking about the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism, what, what, let, let me have you define that just so that way people that are listening, if they aren't familiar with it, they know kind of what it is we're talking about. Oh, boy. Well, when we're talking about cultural Marxism, (laughs) (laughs) well, uh, one quick way, I'll just use this definition because this is kind of a a quick and easy way of describing it, but some have described this as uh, kind of an anti-capitalist critique of culture where you look at certain aspects of culture that need to be changed and you need to mass produce a new school of thought. And, you know, it goes back to people like, Herbert Marcuse, and, and people can, you know, study this in a little bit more depth. But, but basically, it's when we talk about the long march through the institutions and this theory that you have to have social development through different institutions and this new um, philosophy that would get people to uh, change what we've al- already established. Um, critical theory comes into play, and, and I think by, by you know, um, going on with that critical race theory, which a lot of people became familiar with under uh, the Obama presidency because he was friends with the guy who perpetuated that, Derek Bell. But it's basically saying, you know, we need to change society. And we need to change society and we need to weaken society by, uh, by working on people's social assumptions. And it really has been harmful because it isn't honest. It's, again, it's a very stealth uh, political correctness, I think, is the most obvious form of cultural Marxism, where you are subtly pressured to not say certain things, to not use certain words, to not be able to express yourself in certain ways. If you have, for example, the social justice crowd talking about white privilege, that's a form of cultural Marxism. There's mm-hmm. a pressure on white people now that you are guilty before you're even really told what you did wrong. <laughs> right. you know, did I ha- did I ha- I'm white. Did I have any say in whether or not I was going to be white? Am I guilty of something simply because of the amount of melanin in my skin? No. But it's an assumption, it's a guilt trip, and it really changes everybody in how they're able to uh, operate in society because you don't want to run afoul of the PC police. And you can see the effects of this, people losing their jobs. You have one stupid tweet and that's the end of you mm-hmm. i mean this is insane you, you had a story for today today for example where you have a california democrat party i believe it was wanting to call a boycott on in and out burger because it made a donation to the gop well so <laughs> what if it made a donation to the gop that's we're a two-party society why can't people give donations to whatever party they want it's exactly but it's a form of control so mm-hmm. that's the easy way to put it for sure totally and so then i know that with you, with your history and your background, you know a lot about Willow Creek, and I know you had mentioned them earlier. Um, you know, and I've I haven't followed them super closely, um, but I know that you know because I grew up in the whole John MacArthur crowd, that sort of thing. I know that they critique them quite a bit for the seeker sensitive and uh, a lot of these different kind of movements that have really 
begun out of Willow Creek. And then now we all we all kind of know that it's basically like imploding right now. What, yep. wh where, where did they start in the sense of their influence? And I feel like there's that arc and that, you know, to where they are now, like what's led up to all of this? Um, if you could briefly explain that. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's going to have to be some auctioneer speaking if I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's kind of interesting. I have a lot of close ties because I grew up in the Chicago area. I remember when they were planted, they started with a youth group called Sun City, which actually started in my husband's hometown. And he had some relatives who were in the original youth group. So we go way back, but, um, they met in a theater and they went around and it's famously, you know, been told to everybody that they went around and asked people, what would you like in a church? And they kind of took a survey. This was directly from Robert Schuler, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. I had done a sit-down interview with Bill Hybels years ago and did a big two-piece profile for him for the newspaper that I worked for. And I actually interviewed Robert Schuler for that piece. Um, and, you know, he talked all about how Bill Hybels was his disciple. Now, Robert yeah. Schuler with the Crystal Cathedral, I mean, that, you know, it's about the gospel of self-esteem. What are you talking about, you know? Um, but anyway, Bill Hybels had planted Willow Creek, started Willow Creek in the theater, and it eventually grew. When they opened in South Barrington uh, back in the 80s, the effect that it had on the churches in suburban Chicago, right near there where I grew up, I think was really bad. And the reason I say that is because Willow Creek was the hot new thing. And so you and it, you got to remember at this time there really were not mega churches. They're mm -hmm. everywhere now, but they weren't everywhere in the 80s. This was a novelty when Willow Creek opened. So you had a lot of churches around there who were losing people to Willow Creek because it was bright and shiny. I want to see, mm -hmm. you know what's going on out there. Ooh, it's so beautiful and you've got this beautiful pond and these big windows you can look at on the pond during the service and theater seats and they do skits and they've got a rock band. This is awesome. So what happened was a lot of these churches said, "How do we keep people? Well, we better become like Willow Creek." So a lot of these churches started started moving away from what they had done in terms of traditional worship and they started incorporating rock bands and skits and all the rest. Now, of course, they didn't have the money and the resources that Willow Creek did, so when they tried to imitate Willow Creek, they couldn't do it. It was awful, but yeah. <laughs> it didn't change anything, and it really became a permanent part of church life across the country. And by the time the Willow Creek Association got going, they were spreading this all over the world, not just all across the country, but all across the world. The Willow mm -hmm. Creek model became the thing. Well, the problem with all of this, Jeff, was none of this was built on the Bible. None of it. They, mm -hmm. they said, you know, I'm not impugning people's motives, we want to reach non-Christians, but that's not the purpose of the Church, to bring non-Christians inside. That's fine if you do that, but that's not the primary purpose of the Church. The primary purpose of the Church is to worship the Lord and be with other believers and to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus who don't yet know him, and then to disciple those believers. We know that. This created a completely different paradigm that was not biblical in its intent. It was basically, as we know, a church growth strategy. So then it became pastors all wanted to have bigger churches. To this mm -hmm. day, you talk to pastors who have small churches, and they're apologetic. Well, I know my church only has about 80 people. And I always say, good for you. Well, who cares? Why yeah. is a church of 8,000 any better than a church of 80? I mean, at least in a church of 80, you know their names, you do their funerals, you visit them in the hospital, you have more right. of a church. So the, the long and the short of it is, over time, Willow Creek started imploding actually uh, earlier because you had Bill Hybels getting up, they did this big survey, you might remember this, of um, how people assessed how they were doing, and they came back and the people were like, well, we don't know the Bible. And Bill Hybels got up, you can look this back up online, and he said, well, what you really need to do is to become self-feeders. And that was okay. kind of a bombshell because people, you know, people rightly criticized it and said, well, wait a minute. Yes, we should all be reading the Bible. Yes, we should all get our uh, feeding daily from the Word of God. But are you really saying as a pastor it's not your job to bring the Word of God to your congregation? Right. So then they started moving more and more left. At the time I was covering them, I had done a story about uh, there was a controversy at Willow Creek that I had covered as a reporter that involved a former pastor of Willow Creek who was being referred, people from Willow Creek were being referred to him. He had a counseling practice, 
but he was incorporating all these controversial methods where people were screaming obscenities about their fathers and beating things with bats and running naked through the woods. And Willow Creek was recommending people go to this, and it kind of blew up. And, um, you know, so there were things like that. But more than that, they started becoming more and more progressive. And even at the time when I was covering Willow Creek, uh, uh, Bill Hybels was meeting with Bill Clinton. That was somewhat controversial because mm-hmm. it was Bill Clinton, right. which is fine. But then it just became more obvious that they were more liberal and to the point where you had them joining hands more and more with the evangelical left. And now we're here. So now we're here. Yeah. Bill Hybels, you know, has been outed and has had to retire over the sexual impropriety. So all of this to me stems back to what you what you start with may be your undoing in the end if what you're building it on is a foundation of sand. And I mm-hmm. believe it's a, not only a foundation of sand for that church, I think it's been a foundation of sand for the evangelical church as a whole, because you look at what the church growth movement has done to dumb down Christians. Uh, all the reverberations from that we're paying the price, and our kids are paying the price, and our grandkids are going to pay the price if we don't turn it around and return people to the Word of God and, and ensure that they're biblically literate and they're mature in Christ. That has to be the focus. For sure. And I, I know that even for me, too, because I know you were mentioning that, you know, with Willow Creek, when they, when they were really getting going in the 80s and that sort of thing, they were really, they, you were saying they kind of became the first really main mega church in the sense of, like, setting that as a precedent. Yeah. Um, you know, cause for me, for me, my entire life, I grew up with mega churches all, all around me, uh, you know, cause I grew up both in California and Arizona and that sort of thing. And so it's interesting kind of tracing that back to where that's kind of all going back to Willow Creek. Um, I actually wrote an article that I just posted today on my website about mega churches and how once you get over a certain level and a certain number of attendance, it's, it's virtually impossible for the pastors to really minister to the local body, right. you know, because all of a sudden now there's this separation because your church is so massive, a single pastor or a handful of pastors can no longer minister to everybody. So now it becomes more program oriented, which then yeah. leads to the more entertainment, which then leads to, you know, the celebrity worship of pastors. And it's just this kind of vicious cycle that comes out of this mentality of, I need to get a mega church and, you know, compromising truth in order to get there and that sort of thing. So it's just, it's interesting when you kind of follow that history to a certain degree. Well, it is. And, and going off that mega church model, now we have the multi-site. Mm-hmm. And so now you have the celebrity preaching in his own church and then at five other sites where he's beamed in on a screen. Somebody had made the observation, I don't recall who, but I liked it, that isn't it interesting with the multi-site churches, the pastor can be on a screen, but you darn well better have live music. Right. So the, <laughs> the musicians will be there in yeah. person. But, it, but the pastor isn't it. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not biblical, because you have to have a shepherd. Mm-hmm. What about First Peter and, you know, feed the flock of God that, is, God that is your charge, you know, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We know that passage very well. It, it, the, the pastor has a responsibility to disciple the flock and to um, feed the sheep, and that's fallen by the wayside. And how can you have that when the pressure upon pastors is, i got to have a big church, and mm-hmm. i got to get a brand, and i got to get a book deal, and yeah. I darn well better have a podcast, if not a radio show. <laughs> you know, if, if those things are important to you, maybe you're in the wrong line of work. That's mm-hmm. what I'm thinking. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's a lot of these kind of business models that have really taken over, and uh, I, th- I think I want to say like Willow Creek and you've got Saddleback and you've got all these all these different churches where it's it almost becomes it almost becomes more of a business and as opposed to the church. And it's it's really kind of disheartening to a certain degree. Um, well, it is. There's a great book along those lines. If you ever want to read it, it's mm-hmm. really worth your time. It's called Willow Creek Seeker Services, and it's written by a man named Gary Pritchard. I interviewed him years ago after the book came out. And he was, he was at Northwestern, if I'm remembering correctly, and he did an assessment of Willow Creek. He had spent a lot of time out there and assessed it really more as a sociologist. But what was really interesting is the second half of that book was devastating because he said exactly what you're saying. This is, this is a corporate model, and it's about marketing. 
and he really delved into all of the ways that they were able to quote unquote succeed. And for the Christian who would read that, you just stop and you say, wait a minute, is that what a church is supposed to be? That's not the sort of church that I'm reading about in the book of Acts, not that we can ever fully return to the book of Acts the same way the early church did everything, but is it not supposed to be about the fellowship of the saints, the koinonia, the breaking of bread, the prayer, you know, um, the preaching? All of those basic elements of worship need to be there, and nowadays in too many churches I think it's all about the show. Mm-hmm. You know, 80% music and 20% guy on stage with Madonna microphone in his skinny jeans, I'm sorry, that that's just not church to me. That's the way a lot of people think church is, but that's not the way that I grew up, and I prefer the old way. Not because it's old, but because it was more biblical. True. Very true. Now, do you think, Do you because th- I feel like we've, we've gotten to the point now in the modern-day church where we have these mega churches. We've got the, we've got all of this false teaching really coming into really coming into the church even within you know the conservative historically biblically minded churches. Is there really a way to kind of right this sinking ship? Like what what's what's the solution? I honestly think that the solution is to cry out to God in despair, and I'm not being funny when I say that. I think the solution is to fall on our knees and to repent before the Lord of our lack of love for him. I really do. I think all of this is indicative of a church that has wandered away from the one we are supposed to love above all else. He is so secondary in so much of what we do. I, for example, I've heard certain theologians over the years do things like subtly make fun of the quiet time. Maybe you've heard people do this. This is one mm-hmm. example where they'll say, oh, you remember when we were growing up and they said, you got to have your quiet time. What are they really doing? They're mocking the process that pastors would push of saying you need to spend time with the Lord every day. Right. In prayer, in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, in reading the Word of God, in writing down verses, in memorizing Scripture, I think that that had an effect. I, I've heard a lot of guys talk about that. Wasn't that silly, the daily devotion, the quiet time? I mean, come on. There's a, an intellectual, we're way beyond that sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. And the more, the older I get, the more I realize that some of the, some of the people who have had a lot of influence in some of our church circles are people who have mocked us out of what we ought to have been doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you say, thus saith the Lord? I don't know, because the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. Maybe that's, right. <laughs> that's why we're, pastors should say that, right? Yeah. Um, we got to get over it. I think if we're—I can't change the church. I, I, no one can but the Lord. But I think we really need to get before him and weep. I really yes. do, and, and have a time of sorrowful repentance and begging him to give us our churches back. And mm-hmm. I, I think with all of the cleansing that we've seen, going back to, you know, in my case, my interview with Mark Driscoll and how that all, you know, he ended up getting exposed and, you know, left the ministry and then started mm-hmm. another one, but we won't go down that right. road. Yeah. <laughs> but since that time, there have been so many who have been exposed, as we've seen, I think that the Lord is doing a time of cleansing of his church. Mm-hmm. But I think there are more reverberations to come. I pray there will be, because I think more of that needs to happen, not less. Uh, there's just too much that's corrupt. Not just sinful, but corrupt. Mm-hmm. And until that corruption is rooted out, I don't know how we flourish as a church, and I hate that word flourish because it's been overused, right. but yeah. I don't know how we make the Lord our first priority until we deal with our sin. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know that's kind of a downer of an answer, but that's what I really believe. No, but but in all reality, that that's reality. You know, like, you know, even if it is somewhat of a quote-unquote downer of an answer, it's still the truth. And I, and I think that that's, I think that that you hit it right on the head. So, um, yeah, I, you know, just in closing, where can, uh, where can people listen to your shows? Um, you know, your social media handles, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you have, you have daily radio shows, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, well, 
my website is JanetMefford.com. Here I am. We're talking about the, the branding, and I'm giving my website out. You're putting me in a wrong <laughs> place here, Jeff. Yeah, um, yeah. But since, <laughs> no, um, JanetMefford.com is my website, and you can find all the affiliates for Janet Mefford today listed there. Um, and then for Janet Mefford Live, it, it's heard every day on American Family Radio from noon to 1 p.m. Central Time. So that would be AFR.net is AFR's website. So that's where you can hear me. And Janet Mefford is my name on Twitter. I've blown Perfect. up my Facebook page because I couldn't take the Zuckerberg stuff anymore. So sure. I've blown up Facebook, sure. but I, I, you can find me on Twitter. And I'm also on Gab, um, mm-hmm. and I need to be better about posting there. But at least those are a few places that you can find me if you want to. Definitely. And, and you know, and, and the thing that I really like about your, your radio show and your, the shows that you have is that you're really – you're one of the people that's really leading the way on just having conversations with people. Um, and I think that that's an art that's really missing out within the church because I feel like we always just stick within our own little camps and we only talk to each other and then we condemn everybody that's on the other teams and all that kind of stuff. And so I appreciate listening to a lot of the conversations that you have with people because it's a lot of people that I normally wouldn't listen to or or anything along those lines. So it's, it's really interesting and a good experience to even just tune into your show and just listen. Well, you are so nice. Thank you for for listening, and thank you for your support. It's been fun to interact with you online, and it's even more fun talking to you. And maybe one day we'll get to meet each other. That would be the best thing of all. Definitely, definitely. So, well, well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on this week's episode of Conversations, and I hope we can do it again sometime in the future. I would love that, Jeff. God bless you, and all the best to you with your show. And I just know people are loving it, and um, continue to you know, exalt the Lord in what you're doing. I just uh, will be praying for you and, and wish you the best with your show. It's just uh, great to have been with you. Thank you so much, Janet.